enjoying our service? Hasn't it been great? They're having way too much fun up on the platform. If you missed the very beginning, you missed it. So you're going to want to wonder what happened there. And what we are packed in here. And for those of you in Overflow in the quad, thanks for being with us. We're just pumped that we're all here. And Merry Christmas. Uh, this is a, just a great, great time of the year. And we've been celebrating kind of all month leading up to this weekend. I, I, I spoke a couple weeks ago. And sometimes I need to be a little more careful what I say. Uh, basically, I, I did a mass confession kind of. I said, well, you know, I, I really don't care for the, the secular, emotional, sentimental Christmas songs. I, I just don't really like Nothing wrong with them, just my personal preference. And then I mentioned that I always looked for wrapping paper that had a traditional Christmas theme, you know, Jesus or the manger or an angel or star or something, and how hard that was to find. Well, since that time, there's been a little bit of a response. First of all, the next day I came in to my office, and my office door looked like this, uh, wrapped in, in Jesus wrapping paper. And, uh, and since that time, people have been just giving me all kinds of uh, rolls of wrapping paper and gift bags that are all traditionally themed. I just got three more in between the services this morning. So I've got enough wrapping paper to either go into business or, you know, I, I'm set for the next five years. So thank you very much for that. I, I hope that's not you just proving that I'm wrong. I'm taking it that, uh, hey, here's some I found, but, uh, but thank you. Christmas, it's really all about Jesus. And I know for a lot of people, they sort of want to avoid that part of Christmas. But really, it's bound together. I mean, it, Christmas is about the birth of Christ. And what I've noticed is for people, they just want to leave Jesus out of Christmas. Maybe it makes them feel uncomfortable and makes, makes them think too much. I don't know. And, uh, but even for those who want Jesus left in Christmas, one of the, the things about Jesus at Christmas time or any other time, the most unpopular title for Jesus is King. The most unpopular title for Jesus, Christmas time, any other time, is king. We want to make Jesus anything but king. And that's what I want us to reflect on a little bit today. So Christmas really starts, the whole story, the whole story of Jesus starts and ends with him proclaimed king. And so sometimes uh, it's easy, uh, it's a risk that I think we all have, we risk getting a little too sentimental at Christmas. And we forget that we have a first century historical record that's telling us about the birth of Christ. And I'd like to read from that. And I'd like to read from a passage. I actually was in this passage a couple weeks ago. But it's Matthew chapter 2. And so pull out your device or grab a Bible in the chair rack in front of you. I think it's around 970. Matthew chapter 2. And we're going to start reading right there and focus in on the historical Jesus, what was happening then regarding Jesus coming as king. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When 
Herod heard the, Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then he quotes, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they, great, they, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This, is, this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, another quote, out of Egypt, I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two, year old, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And we'll stop there. And basically... What I want us to think about today is when people are, are confronted with Jesus as king, they respond in three different ways. And we see it right here in this story. They respond with hostility, or they respond with indifference, or they respond with joyful worship. Responding with hostility, that's what we see in Herod right away here begins the persecution of Jesus right, right at the very beginning because he understands something that we don't understand, that we don't think about a lot, and that is that there can only be one king. Herod, he totally gets that. And, and I know today uh, we still have persecution against Christians and, and countries around the world even today. I was just hearing some stories on the news, uh, on the radio actually, and also read some accounts in India, different places, typically Muslim or Hindu countries, you know, persecute Christians. By the way, just a disclaimer here, there are no Christian countries that routinely persecute people of other faith. But anyway, side note, but this, this happens today. Well, this all started right here with King Herod 
in the first century, shortly after the birth of Christ. Now, history tells us a lot about Herod because he accomplished a lot of great things, built a lot of stuff in Palestine. But one of the issues with Herod is that he had a major insecurity problem. And he was also paranoid about his throne and keeping control. We know, for example, from, from history that Herod killed uh, his wife, executed her, because he thought maybe she was plotting against him. He also killed his mother-in-law, executed her as well. During his lifetime, he also executed three of his sons because he thought maybe they were just a little too ambitious. This is Herod killing his own family. As a matter of fact, we know from secular history that Caesar, knowing Herod and really putting Herod as king of Palestine or king of Judea, Caesar said of Herod, it's better to be one of Herod's pigs, because Jewish people don't eat pork, than to be one of his sons. So that's Herod, ruthless And when Herod became troubled, that's why the whole city became troubled, because Herod was was a little unbalanced, and who knew how he would react? But Jesus truly is our king. And of course, he acted like he wanted to worship Jesus, but it was just a ruse, so he would get the Magi to come back, these wise men to come back and tell him where Jesus was so he could destroy Jesus. But they didn't do that. They, they were warned about that, and they went back another way. But it's interesting, because if the Magi would have said, hey, we've traveled all this way to come and worship the one who is going to die for our sins, Herod might have said, I could use some of that. That sounds great. But that's not what the Magi said. They said, we've come to worship the one who was born king. And because of this, that's the way Herod reacted. He understood, hey, only one could be king. He wanted uh, his kingdom under control. And so we see his hostility coming out as he sends a squad of soldiers into Jerusalem and they kill all male children two years old and under. And at this time in history in Bethlehem, that's probably uh, about 20 or 30 male children that were killed by Herod in his hostility to Christ. And, and I know today we think, well, yeah, that's Herod. And, and we might even think, yeah, there's persecution around the world. But here in our culture, in our country, we don't have that kind of hostility against Jesus. Okay, I, I guess that's true until you start talking about the claims that Jesus made. Then people don't like it. And sometimes they get mad. They get a little hostile when you say that, that Jesus came and said he was the only way to God. There's no other way. No other religion is right. Only one way, and that's through Christ. And people, they don't like that. They say, oh, that's so exclusive. And, and it is exclusive. Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world in that it doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from, who you are, what race you are, what age you are. None of that matters. We're all the same. We're all sinners. And everyone is invited to come. But it's exclusive in the fact that there is only one way. That's through Christ alone. And people don't like that. Jesus comes along and says, 
everybody, we've all sinned against God. We're all sinners. People don't like that. And sometimes they get mad. Sometimes when they're pushed, they're hostile toward that. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He claimed to be God. People don't like that if they don't believe his claim. You mention that, and then people start not liking it. They get mad. So when confronted with a Jesus who has come as king, people respond either with hostility or a lot of people respond with indifference. They just, they kind of just don't want, are, are you, you know what, what I mean by indifference? Like, I love hamburgers. You know, I eat them, it doesn't matter if they're from Rally's, McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, Five Guys, it does not matter, I like hamburgers. I don't really care for pickles, I don't really care if they're on my hamburger or not, I'm indifferent. If I was making it, I wouldn't put them on, but they're on there, hey, that's okay. Indifferent. You indifferent about something? Well, that's how some people are about Jesus. And people like this, and they're all over. They, they know Christmas has something to do with Jesus. They know, yeah, this is the traditional time that we celebrate Jesus' birth. But his presence does not alter or affect their life in any way. The great example of this, by the way, in the story that we just read out of Matthew 2 are the scribes and the chief priests, which is really, the more you think about this, it's amazing. Because here we have these magi or wise men who have come from the east. They've traveled 900 miles around the Arabian desert. They show up in the capital of Jerusalem, go to the palace, meet with King Herod, and say, Where, where's the one who's been born king? And so they've, they've done all this effort, but when Herod is trying to figure this information out, he calls all the experts, he calls all the chief priests, and there would be a bunch of them because that would include former chief priests, and even though he wasn't really supposed to, Herod kept kind of swapping them out as kings, so that's a pretty big group of people. And then he, he summoned the scribes. These are the lawyers, the experts in the Old Testament law, and they were trying to follow the Old Testament law, and these were the guys that taught the law, and so he, he gets this assembly together, and he asks them, where is, that? where does the prophecies say that Jesus is, or the Messiah is going to be born? And they say, Bethlehem. These are the guys that should have been on the cutting edge of all this. Why? Because they had the Old Testament, which contained hundreds of prophecies about Jesus Christ. For example, they had uh, one of the prophets, Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah 7.14 says. And these are, we call, to us, they're like Christmas passages, but they're just a sliver of all the prophecies concerning Christ. Isaiah 7.14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And by the way, Emmanuel means God with us. And and not only are the prophecies pointing to a coming king, but that he's more than a king. For example, in the same book, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For a child will be born to us, 
a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. These are heavy-duty prophecies saying that the Messiah is coming, and he's going to be more, even more than a king. And by the way, I know sometimes we're reading out of Isaiah, and there's this major disconnect. Well, Isaiah, some old book in the Old Testament. Let me try to connect the dots for you here. Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah. So we've passed down the Bible through generations, and people say, well, it's been passed down for a few thousand years. How do we know it's accurate? In 1948, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered by a shepherd throwing rocks at caves as he's tending his sheep. They pull out of there all kinds of documents. And actually, for the next several years, they keep finding more caves and more documents. And it turns out that all these scrolls were hidden when the Romans invaded in 68 AD in the first century, just about 30 years after the death of Christ. So this all happened, right? In those documents is one called the Great Isaiah Scroll. It's the complete text of the entire book of Isaiah that we found in 1948, but that was hidden there in the first century after the death of Christ. This could have been in Jerusalem. This could be a scroll that Jesus read from. This was there in the first century during the life of Christ. Not only that, but archaeologists have dated the scroll to 200 years prior to when it was hidden. That means it was 200 years old, the physical scroll, when they hid it in 68 AD that we found 2,000 years later. The, what I'm just trying to say, oh, and by the way, the Isaiah that we read in our Bibles today is exactly the same as the Isaiah that we dug up in 1948. It's the same Isaiah we had before that, and the Isaiah dated back 200 years, but it was a record of a prophecy that had been made. The book of Isaiah, the original, was written 500 years before that. So 700 years before Christ, you have all these prophecies, and we can prove that. And we can prove that the Bible has not changed. So don't buy that, but anyway, I need to move on. Just know that. But here's the deal. The, the chief priests and the scribes, they, they were the experts in the Old Testament. They had all these prophecies, and they were not searching for Jesus. They were not searching for the Messiah. They were indifferent. Even though, check this out, in the book of Daniel, which they had access to, that they studied, one of their greatest prophets. In Daniel, Daniel gives a timetable from the rebuilding of the temple down to the generation that the Messiah would come. All they had to do is count the years. And they would know that in the generation they lived, that would be the generation that Christ would come. They had all that. And they were indifferent. Not only that, check this out. I always think about this more and more last couple of weeks. So these guys show up, they naturally come to the capital, Jerusalem, they naturally go to the palace, they're looking for a baby that's been born king. Herod meets with them, freaks out a little bit, calls in the experts, they say, well, that's in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is six miles from Jerusalem, six miles. It's a two-hour walk. I mean, it's right there. And then the Magi leave, and then Herod says, oh, by the way, if you find him, let me know. The scribes and the chief priests, they don't even go. 
with the Magi. They're not even interested enough. You know, maybe they were intimidated, intimidated by Herod, but they don't even go to see what's going on in Bethlehem. They stay in Jerusalem. They're indifferent. They're, they're experts in the Bible of their day, and they're indifferent to the birth of their Messiah, or at least the claim of that. You know, and that's how people are today. You know, they know, hey, Christmas is about Jesus, but they don't let his presence affect their comfortable life. But Christmas means that you and I have a king. We have a king. We have a God over us. And, and here's the thing about indifference. And I got to tell you, whether you're here today as a believer or a non-believer, I think we are way more indifferent than we think we are. Even believers, we can so easily become indifferent toward Christ. What do I mean by that? I mean, we just start living our life without thinking that we have a God and a Christ, that he's told us how we should live and how we should honor him. It's so easy to be indifferent. But here, here's the thing. Indifference will always turn into hostility when pressed. There's a bunch of people that we all know that are indifferent to Jesus. They're not hostile. They're not mad at Jesus. They, you know, they, they may even believe that, well, everybody believes he existed, but you know, they may even believe that he might be God or he is God. But they're indifferent. Here's what I'm telling you. But when they are pressed, sooner or later that indifference will turn one way or the other, it'll usually turn into hostility. That's exactly what happened with this whole class of people, by the way, the chief priests and the scribes. 33 years later after this incident that we just read about, it's the religious leaders, the chief priests and the scribes who are putting pressure on the Roman governor Pilate to crucify Jesus, to kill Jesus, to get rid of Jesus. Their indifference turned into hostility, and the same will happen with people today. That's true of a whole class of people then, and it's true of people today. So, and remember this. Remember, Pilate was sort of coerced into killing Jesus. I mean, he was thinking, I'm not really getting this. I don't know what he's really done wrong. Uh, this is all a religious thing that really has nothing to do but politically, he had all this pressure from the Jewish leaders. And so then he submits to that pressure and he condemns Jesus to death, one of the most torturous deaths, crucifixion. And so he's condemned to death by crucifixion. But then Pilate does something that the religious leaders don't want him to do. You remember what that was? All four first century witnesses tell us that it's all at the end of their books, that when Jesus was crucified, Pilate has a sign put up on the cross that says what? Jesus, king of the Jews, right? His whole existence, Jesus, when he came, he came as 
from people from another country, global perspective saying Jesus is king and he's killed, crucified, Jesus is king. And three days later, he was resurrected and it proved to everyone that's true. That's Jesus, our king. So when confronted with Jesus as king, we can respond and we respond in one of three ways, hostility, indifference, or joy-filled worship. We respond with joy and worship. That's what Christians do. Do you know what? Think of your most joy-filled time. For, for a lot of us, that may be Christmas, right? Do you remember being a kid and waiting the night before Christmas? You know, and all that anticipation and you're trying to sleep and you can't sleep. For, I had brothers and I was the oldest, so we all slept in the same room that night because the deal was nobody would go downstairs and start opening gifts before anybody else. But I had one brother that always did that, the middle brother, Wade. So Wade, you know, it, he, he would always, I don't know if he ever slept. So we would finally fall asleep, you know, at one in the morning. We, then, you know, how it is, I don't know how it was in your house, but when I was a kid, it's like 3 a.m. Hey, mom and dad, can we get up now? No. Go back to sleep. Anybody experience anything like that? Three of you. Okay, well, anyway. So that's just how that was. And then here's how it always was for me. Wade waking me up. Yeah, yeah, it's Christmas morning. I'm like, oh, great. Did you, you know, what's going on? Did you see, did you see the presence? And he goes, yeah, I've been down there. <laughs> Wait, we just talked for like three days. Don't go... You know, but it was the anticipation, right? The joy, you go down there, you get to open gifts. It's just, it's a day just to have. A... This is how the, the Magi, these wise men, they've been on a journey that's taken them maybe a year, 900 miles, following the Fertile Crescent around the Arabian Desert. They finally arrive. They, they meet with Herod. Oh, he's not here. They find out, oh, he's in Bethlehem. They head to Bethlehem. The star that they had seen before appears and shows them the place where Jesus is. Boom. Rock solid. This is it. And they then rejoice with exceeding joy. I mean, they are overjoyed. They are pumped. They finally have come to see the one that they've traveled and planned and brought gifts for all this time. They rejoice. They recognize, hey, this is the one. And they're seeing him as something more than just a king. Because they not only had all this joy, Matthew says they worshiped. It's interesting, uh, the, the original Greek word there, worship, it can be translated either worship or bow down. And because we don't have kings, we don't do this a whole lot, but the word worship means this. I mean, it's bow down, forehead on the ground, worship before God. That's worship. Now, some people will point out, hey, well, this, this word sometimes in the first century was used of somebody bowing down before an earthly king. Which is true. The word is used that way. But Matthew never uses it that way. Matthew always uses this as you worship God. You worship the only one worthy of worship. And that's how he uses it all through this text where he's saying, hey, they came to worship. And then Herod says, 
hey, even though he didn't mean it, I will worship. And then they finally actually get to fall down before Jesus in worship, saying, you are the only one worthy to be worshipped. You are my king, even you are my God. Jesus makes all the difference. You know, I mentioned around the world that, that there are places where people are hostile toward Christians, which is really interesting because really all religions have a high view of Jesus. Even Islam, to them, Jesus is a prophet. Do you know, you can go anywhere in the world, and you, if you told somebody, hey, you remind me of Jesus, that's a compliment anywhere if they've heard anything about Jesus, that's a compliment no matter where they are, what country they're in, or what religion they are. That's still a compliment because Jesus is well thought of all over the world, but Jesus did not come to be well thought of all over the world. Jesus came to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. He came to die for our sins. He claimed to be God more than a king. Remember, he said, I and the Father are one. And we hear that and we say, well, you know, people say that in different ways. No, he said, I and the Father are one. And then the Jewish people that heard him say that reacted and said, you, we are stoning you because you, a mere man, claim to be God. And they took up stones to kill him immediately for blasphemy. I and my father are one. He, he's in another running debate with some religious leaders. And, and they, they bring up Abraham. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. When he did that, he used this personal name of God. It's kind of confusing to us, but I am is God's personal name. The Jewish people in the first century knew exactly what he was saying because, again, as soon as he says that, even though they've been arguing for a chapter or two, it stops and they all pick up stones to stone him immediately. Why? For blasphemy. He claimed to be God after his resurrection. Thomas, the, the doubter, right? He finally meets up with the resurrected Jesus. And what does he say? He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus claimed to be more than king. He claimed to be God. John's Christmas story starts a little different. At the beginning of John, it says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And the word, I'm sorry, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then 14 verses later it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We're going to concentrate on this passage next week, next Sunday. But the most important issue is simply, how do you, how will you respond to Jesus? I ask that question because we all have a little Herod in us, Right? We want to be the king of our lives, right? Am I the only one? You know, we want to call the shots for us. We want to make our own decisions. We want to decide what we think is right and wrong. We all have a little Herod in us, and to that extent, we are actually hostile 
to God's rule over our life, to his, his kingship in our life, that he's God, he's our creator. And we all have a little of the scribes in us too. I think way more than we think. I think we're all more in, indifferent than we should be. Me and everyone here, I think we're all, to some extent, indifferent to Jesus in some area of our life. And we don't, we don't really live like, like he's right in our presence or that we're in his presence. We, we think of Jesus as a friend and a savior, and he is, but he's none of those things if he's not king. King of the universe, king of our lives. He's way too big, way too big to just be an add-on to our life, just to be somebody who, yeah, his presence doesn't really affect how we live that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. Scripture tells us uh, you know, he came saying he's God. People can't really have a mild response to Jesus and understand much about him. You can't mildly respond to that. If people have a mild response to Jesus... They have no intellectual integrity regarding Jesus and what he said, regarding the Bible, or even regarding spirituality. It's, it can't be mild. It can't be casual. Not response to the real Jesus. You see, God existed eternally in three persons. One God existing in Father, Son, and Spirit and in community. God created human beings in his image, and he created us with a freedom that we can pursue a relationship with God. But we've all used our freedom to go a different direction and to do wrong things that God says are wrong. Scripture calls this sin, and we've all sinned. But it gets worse than that. Because God is perfectly just, God says his character demands that sin be punished, all sin. And if sin wasn't punished, then God couldn't be just. That we wouldn't live in a just universe, that there would be ultimate justice. There couldn't be unless God punishes sin, well, which is bad news for all of us because we've all sinned. And our punishment is greater than we want to bear. It's separation from God forever. That's what we all deserve. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. Separation from God forever. It's the right thing. But God also loves us. And because of that love for us, he allowed his one and only son, Jesus, to come to earth, what we celebrate at Christmas time. He clothed himself in humanity he lived a, an amazingly full life, a short life, 33 years. But he impacted the world like nobody ever has before or since. And at the end of his life, and, and by the way, he lived that life without sin. The only one to walk the planet, zero sin. He never committed a sin. He never did anything wrong. And at the end of his life, he willingly died to pay for our penalty, our personal 
penalties for sin. He did that for us. He loved us with that kind of action. And then the most common, uh, most popular verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Through God's love, he's made this provision. And how do we get that? Through belief, by believing in Jesus. That same word can be translated faith or trust. You see, it's a free gift. We don't become Christians by going to church, by getting baptized, by taking communion, by doing religious actions. And we don't become Christians by doing good things in our community. That doesn't make us a Christian. That does not make us any closer to God. Only one thing. There's only one way, and that's through Christ. When we place our trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, that his death was sufficient to pay for all my sins, past, present, and future. And when I put my trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, not Jesus and I'm a pretty good person, not Jesus and I'm pretty nice, not Jesus and I'm a good dad or a good mom, not Jesus and I do the church thing, not Jesus and I've been baptized, not Jesus in anything, just Jesus. When we put our trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, that's when we become a true Christian. It's a total gift that we just receive by faith. And the question is, have you done that? The way you can tell if you've done it, because a lot of people will will pray a prayer and we'll even do that, but if you're not sincere, that, that doesn't mean anything. If you've truly been saved, if you've truly put your trust in Christ, it'll show up in your life because you'll want to honor him with how you live. You'll want to know him more. So you might show up in church because you want to know more about him. And your life will change. You you won't be perfect. But you'll you'll want to honor him. You'll you'll want to live in a way that that is right. So right now I'd like to give everyone uh, an opportunity before we leave today because this is the most important decision you can ever make in your life, how you respond to Jesus. And I'd like us all to bow our heads And if you're here and you're not sure whether you're a believer or not, here's what I'm going to do in just a moment while our heads are bowed right now. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And saying these words or thinking these words, that does not make you a Christian. But if these words are an expression of your newfound trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, then you will be saved. Well, what do you mean by saved? Saved from the right punishment of your sin, which is separation from God. You'll become a believer. But, but I want to warn you about something. God will start changing your life from the inside out because he is your king. So if you don't know, if you've ever come to Christ purely on faith and based on nothing else, I'd like to lead you in this prayer. And again, 
It's not so much the words, and, and you can just pray this silently to God. God knows you. He knows more about you than you do. He knows everything about you, and he loves you, and he will hear you. But make this prayer your prayer, and make this prayer be sincere in your life. Something like this, right now, as our heads are bowed, silently. Father God, I understand that that you've created me. I also understand that I've done wrong things like everyone else. And I've come to know that you're so holy that though and you're so just that those that wrong in my life has to be punished. I'm responsible for that. It has to be punished. But God, I'm amazed and overwhelmed at your love that you would love me so much that you would allow Jesus to voluntarily suffer and die on the cross in order to pay for my personal sins. And right now I'm placing my trust, my faith, my belief in Jesus and Jesus alone. And I thank you for that incredible gift. And I pray that you'd come into my life and help me live out a life that honors you. God, help me. Thank you. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like us to continue bowing our heads just for a moment. And I just want to ask you, if you've prayed that prayer as far as you know for the first time, um, I would like you to indicate that. And I don't want to embarrass you, but I want you to take some kind of a step to indicate that you did that. And so with our heads bowed, I'm just going to ask you to, to lift your hand up. And I won't embarrass you or ask you to do anything else. But thank you. Just lift your hands up. Just say, hey, Kevin, I prayed that prayer. See you both back there. Thank you. Just lift them up, and then you can put them right back down. But let me, I'm looking around. Everybody else's heads are bowed, but just let me kind of see you. Just lift it up. Thank you. Thank you, all of you. And put it right back down. Thanks. Thanks. Anyone else say, hey, Kevin, I prayed that prayer. Just a chance for us to pray for you. Just lift it up and right back down. We're going to close in prayer. Thanks. Father in heaven, we we thank you for all these who have indicated, Lord, that they have have come to know you, put their faith in in Jesus alone. And, and Lord, they're at the same spot that many of us have been. Lord, we're all the same. We're, We're sinners. And you've offered us forgiveness. And it's just a gift. And you've allowed us to respond in faith. God, thank you for that. And I pray that all these who have indicated that, and maybe some who, who didn't, but prayed that prayer sincerely, or that they would feel your presence, that you'd help them to grow, that they would attach themselves to a Bible-believing church. And if it's in our area, we hope that would be our church so they could grow closer to you and find out more about you. God, thank you. Thanks for loving us. Thank you for that very first Christmas. In Christ's name we pray, amen.